Welcome to Loser Hill, folks. Uh, your host, Philip Kingston, trying to fulfill my uh, duty to bring you more and more content. Um, we had we had a, a lull period. You all now know that the reason for that was that I was planning a run for office, which has now begun. Um, uh, thoughts and prayers are very much appreciated. Money's even more appreciated. KingstonFordAlice.com. Four is F-O-R, not the number four, because I'm not Prince. Um, so, um, Loserville will continue regardless of the outcome of this election, um, because I discovered this morning that Kristen Liber, who's on the show today, is an actual fan. And when I when I when I find actual fans, it, it's always surprising and gratifying to me. So, Kristen, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. And we have with Kristen, uh, Kristen Nightingale. Mm-hmm. We confuse people with that. Uh, Nightingale's good. Nightingale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kristen Nightingale is married to David Higby, who is a very cool person in and of himself. And when we do the lacrosse episode of Loserville, <laughs> we'll have David on. Yes, he has to be there. Uh, we're at the offices of Better Block uh, in uh, Super Hip Oak Cliff, um, home of the Cliffsters, which is my own portmanteau for the people who live around here. <laughs> um, uh, Krista and I got to know each other through local politics or something. Yeah. She's a downtown resident for many years in the Wilson building and a great advocate for downtown. Now working for Better Block. And ladies, what the hell is Better Block? It's <laughs> a great question. Always hard to answer on podcasts or radio. Uh, but the Better Block is an urban design nonprofit. Uh, we're based here out of Oak Cliff, but we do work all over the country and um, internationally as well. And basically, we work alongside neighbors to bring ideas to life. A lot of times that's looking at the streets and talking about how can we slow down streets with road diets, um, creating spaces that are safer for people to walk around. Uh, a lot of times that's looking at the commercial activity in the area. Are there small businesses? How can we help them better activate the sidewalk? If there aren't businesses in the area, how can we bring uh, local entrepreneurs into the space and give them a chance to try out some of their concepts? Um, and uh, lately, a lot of our work has been uh, focused on safety and what does that even mean? And uh, working in spaces like empty parking lots and turning them into plazas and spaces for the community to come together. I saw it described somewhere, and I'm, I'm sorry I can't give you proper attribution for this, is guerrilla urbanism. Yeah. Does that, does that strike a bell? It does, yeah. Guerrilla urbanism, tactical urbanism, it's all the same. It's when you do it light, cheap, quick, and community-led. And maybe sometimes in spite of government? <laughs> That's definitely how it started out. Uh, so Tell the story. Yeah, the story. yeah, okay, all right. So it all started 10 years ago when our founding director, Jason Roberts, he and his neighbors walked out onto Tyler Street, which is just a couple blocks away from where we are right now. And they looked at the street and said, what can we do to make this better? Uh, They wanted to add some cafe seating. They wanted to bring in flowers and just create a space where people could come together. But they quickly found that there were ordinances from the 40s prohibiting those things from happening. So it was $1,000 to add sidewalk um, seating or sidewalk flyers. It was area times market value times 85% times 12% to add cafe seating. And there's an ordinance from the 40s that says it's illegal for people to gather on the sidewalk. Scott Grace was the one who found those ordinances and pointed them out. 
So the neighbors killed Joey Scott Griggs. Yeah, can't, can't tell you how many migraines he's cracked. Uh, so it with got his up. stupid realism, <laughs> but it was good. It's good to know like these things existed. And so the neighbors took a look at that, and they said, basically, we can't create what we want to because these things are in place. Um, so under the umbrella of tactical urbanism, which, as Kristen said, is just the community going out and making the changes they want to see. That's exactly what they did. So for one weekend, they painted bike lanes with kids' paint and duct tape. They knew they could remove it really quickly. If they had to, they got in trouble. Uh, they ran some old seats, or they put out some seating. They ran in some old lights. They invited some of their neighbors who had ideas for businesses to pop up for the weekend and test out some of their concepts. And then throughout all of this, they posted those ordinances that they were breaking. They posted them on the windows, and they invited city staff to come take a look. So they weren't sure what was going to happen, but city staff came out and they said, you're right, this doesn't make sense. If we want to create more vibrant streets and bring people out, we need to change some of these things. And over time, some of those things started to change. Um, unfortunately, not all of them have not changed. Not all of them. I, I, know. Uh, I know. I I was at the Board of Adjustment two weeks ago trying to get a... Uh, uh, front yard variance for a property on McKinney to be able to put in a sidewalk cafe. Mm -hmm. The city has now passed multiple pieces of policy that encourage sidewalk cafes, including the new Knox Street uh, skate plan mm -hmm. actually requires space for cafes that, are, that is separate from the pedestrian uh, throughway that's right. required by the ADA. So it's required stuff and the state, state of Texas actually expanded what boards of adjustment can look at in granting variances to local zoning ordinances. And it, it basically created a catch-all saying any other requirement, mostly intended to catch requirements of pandemic response, which this certainly was. Yeah. And uh, uh, Jennifer Staubach, Gates appointee to the board of adjustment, um, was the lone holdout who said that a sidewalk cafe was bad for urbanism and bad for pedestrians uh, and killed the license. Um, so I've got to figure out what to do with that here in a minute. Um, but there are still lots of minds to change. That is, I suppose, the point I'm making. Have you all, do you all have a story about people who didn't get it and then got it? Because I feel like I feel like I'm one. Oh, yeah, of course. Let's think I think this. okay. So one, this isn't in Dallas. Uh, I hope that's okay. Yeah. Uh, so we did a project in Toronto uh, in 2019, and uh, the street that we worked on is Danforth Avenue. If this street were in Dallas, it would be the best street we have in the city. It's a really great street. Um, tons of commercial activity. You've got the residential just right on the edges. People are super involved. There's a park on the end, and the street itself is slightly overbuilt, as are most cities, uh, most streets in, in this area. So uh, we took a look at that and proposed um, doing parking protected bike lanes. So mm -hmm. where you put in the bike lane and then you do the parking on the outside of that bike lane between the traffic and the bike lane creating that buffer. Cheapest barrier separated bike lane you can build. And it, it tends to make most people happy. However, they didn't let us do that. And they said, instead, what we want you to do is extend the sidewalk 
and do a bike lane and then do um, just barriers as the as the barricade between the traffic and the bike lanes. The sidewalks in that area are already quite wide and wonderful. Um, so we made them even wider. And so it wasn't our ideal way to go about the design, but we did it. And we did it for two days and we tested out the concept. Throughout that entire time, as we're installing, as we're putting things in place, I'm talking with one particular business owner who owns a bar in that area. He was so against this idea, against the idea of bike lanes being there. Uh, he was very adamant that this was not going to work. This was going to kill his business. He was very upset about this whole thing. Um, so I kept talking to him every day as we saw the progress going and we kept you know, having discussions about it. And then um, once it happened, he saw the activity that the bike lanes brought to the space. Um, he saw how people were using the space in a different way. And then he saw his sales numbers for that weekend, which um, were greater than what they had been any other weekend prior. And so we were talking through this concept and I said, well, what if, just what if instead of extending that sidewalk, we're doing the bike lane there and then we bring your parking back and we do the parking protected bike lane. He's like, well, yeah, that I'm for. Yeah, that'd be great. And so that's what we proposed to this city council member. Um, after the project, we said, this is what we think would work best in this area. Two years later, they're working on making that permanent. But that's kind of the point of our work is we want to push it as far as we can and take it to the next level. Because it's temporary, we can do that. And we erase this fear of permanency. We allow people to really experiment. And then if we need to dial it back a step, we can do that as well. And that's the thing that can become more permanent. You all ran the uh, demonstration program for Knox Street um, when the, I suppose that study was um, requested by the public improvement district there. Um, but I have to tell you that the owners, the majority of the owners were not in favor of urbanizing and pedestrianizing Knox, which seems insane. Um, but you know, as a, as a, as, as a newly old person, I, I can, I started to sympathize that people are just the age that they are. Um, but that demonstration program, uh, really changed minds. But the other thing it did is that it tried out bike lanes mm -hmm. and everyone agreed that they weren't appropriate for, for that space. And I thought that was interesting as well, that not, there's not just a, a rote list of urbanist ideas that a, a group of, um, you know, berate pinkos from Oak Cliff is trying to enforce on every urban space in America. Um, you guys actually do have more tools in your bag than just turn everything into Oak Cliff. Right. We do. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and that's the beauty of a demonstration because you can test it out. You can see what's going to work and then, you know, ultimately what doesn't work, um, which in every project, I would say not everything works out, but that's kind of the point of it. And, you know, that's kind of a little bit of a frustration in Dallas. I always tell people this. Dallas does not like pilots. Dallas does not like to do demonstrations. Um, so we do a lot of work in a lot of other cities because we're allowed to kind of go in and test these things out. Well, I can tell you the technical reason Dallas doesn't like pilots is that city attorneys from time immemorial have told policymakers that Dallas's code does not allow for pilots. Mm. Um, this is absolutely false. Like it, it's, it is such bad advice. 
um, that it, it's stunning, but it's it, it's become calcified in city policy. And I'm hopeful that we're going to see a new city attorney here uh, sometime soon that might take a, a, a brighter view of what we can do to experiment with our city. Because you all know that you've run enough pilots here that they, they work great. And the whole, the, the whole issue is, is somebody going to come do enforcement on you while you're trying to learn something about a neighborhood? And the answer is no. I mean, we're not doing enough enforcement of just regular violations of our code in any way. Um, Kristen, you are a senior project manager. Is that right? I am, yeah. Um, but did not come from an urban design background. So what, like, what the hell? I did not. No, it's, many of us didn't. Um, we, I think it's something that's totally learnable if you, if you pay attention. Um, it's really about, I think I say here, we do a really good job of helping communities become really good corporate citizens, how to navigate, you know, permitting processes, how to, how to make changes, incremental changes, or, you know, mobilize their neighborhood to get something that they'd like to see. So, uh, I'm sort of teaching what I learned myself a few years ago and obviously learned from the best around Jason and Krista who've been doing it for years, but it, it's been uh, interesting to see how many things are very obvious if you just pay attention and how many things actually are very counterintuitive and you have to sort of see them played out and then help communicate that to other people. You know, things, for example, um, you know, uh, creating worse parking situations in an area can actually improve the walkability of a space that and make it a place you want to be. Um, that's something that a lot of people have a hard time understanding. And then many others, lately with all our crime work, uh, or crime prevention work, it's been um, taking places that really uh, ha have nothing in terms of human scale amenities, no reasons why people would want to be in this space, and trying some ideas that bring the neighborhood out and um, really helping people envision something in a drab, dreary, crime-ridden parking lot where they couldn't before. So it's really just about just being a, a some sort of like mad scientist in the public realm. Where have you done crime prevention stuff and how has it worked? And is this, mm -hmm. is this SEPTED or is this other kinds of interventions? Yeah, we, uh, we have done three, I would say, now that are truly crime prevention work, um, two through Project Safe Neighborhood and one uh, along MLK in South Dallas in the food park. Those were all over the last two years, I think, when we really started leaning into that. And I think we were even taken aback by how much our work was not just about, you know, pretty window dressing or, or changing uh, some colors in a space, but really fundamentally changing the the perception or look and feel of a whole community or neighborhood um, space. So yeah, we've been doing it for a few years. Uh, all three in Dallas, uh, the Green Meadows 2019 was a, a year long project. MLK Food Park was earlier this year um, along MLK and Holmes in South Dallas. And then we just wrapped up the Forest and Audelia project where we uh, transformed a park into a parking lot on some parks property that was just purchased. As far as the impact, uh, Vickery Meadow has not seen a or the plaza where we installed this hasn't seen a single uh, violent crime incident since we installed it in 2019. Um, the MLK Food Park, there is a um, kind of a known drug house behind the park, and uh, we were told that the traffic there slowed down to a trickle during the project. And then with Forest Adelia, we're just not getting the numbers and starting to kind of analyze what that looked like. So we have more anecdotes there than anything. Um, 
one was we were talking to a neighbor the other day about the area and she lives in the apartment building across the street they have a curfew of 10 o'clock and there's no public space and so she said i literally don't know my neighbors and i have no reason to know my neighbors but with this park, uh, she's out there playing basketball every day and she brings her kids and she's looking out for other people's kids. They're looking out for her kids. And she's like, I finally get it. Like, I finally get to know my neighbors. And she she was advocating. She's like, how do I keep this around and how can I ensure that this continues to stay? I have always thought that if you could just sell the drugs in the convenience stores, you wouldn't have to have drug houses. And that would fix a lot of people's complaints. Interesting. <laughs> so moving on from that. Uh, so you mentioned CIPTED. So uh, that's crime prevention through environmental design. Um, it was a, a kind of a philosophy. That it, all, it sounded like bullshit to me when I first heard it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's a tricky thing because it was, I think, brought up in the 70s. And um, in a lot of ways, that like the broken windows theory has been used in some negative connotations with the neighbors. So it has CIPTED. Um, so... When we're doing this work, we're trying to be very careful about how we're applying it and what we're applying and who we're listening to. Um, because safety, that's a hard thing to define because it depends on the lens through which you're viewing the world. And so what's safe for me may not feel safe for Kristen, may not feel safe for you. And so we don't ever try to say like, this is what's gonna make this area safer until we've heard from the community first and we have their input and we have their say on what they would like to see there. Um, you know, Vickery Meadow, one of the probably most controversial moves we made um, was we took the bars off the windows of the small businesses in the area. They were very, very nervous about that and, you know, felt like the only way their store was going to be protected was by keeping those bars up. But what those bars are doing are communicating that this area is unsafe. And then they're also um, not allowing for any permeability. So no one's looking out for you on the inside. No one's looking out for, for you on the outside. So that was a whole discussion and became a whole thing. They ultimately did take the bars off the windows and they're still down. And I don't think it no issues that we've heard of. Yeah, no Burglar worries. bars always make me think the same thing. And it always makes me think about burning to death inside that building. That's <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's, so, it, I know this from working with BetterBlock, um, so I, I don't know. I struggle with how to ask questions in a way that sounds like I don't know what the hell the answer is. I actually do know what the hell the answer is, but it sounds like a substantial portion of the time that you all spend on projects has a lot less to do with the physical changes you're proposing and a lot more to do with engaging the community and maybe some public education. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, yeah. We say our projects generally are 120 days, but you know, 95% of that is spent on serving the community, reaching the right people, finding the stakeholders, doing a little bit of education. And I always like to say that what might look and feel like, you know, a very fun block party at the end is actually the, you know, broccoli and the mashed potatoes hiding in there of urban design, good urban design. So, um, you know, we, we throw a fun block party with the food and the, and the booze and the music that make it really fun. But what it is is an exercise in community-led space layouts that work for the people, or at the very least, they don't work, but that's just as valuable information, and that can go iterate on like long after we're gone. Well, I know that um, because of social media, the the greatest tool ever to uh, to to grace man, um, that uh, Krista has had many close calls downtown with 
the shitty drivers who menace us when we walk from our offices and homes. Um, and I, I bike uh, quite a bit. And of course, anybody who bikes in Dallas has been nearly killed more than once. And um, the city nominally is committed to vision zero. Um, there's no time frame that's been identified. Um, and uh, we continue to be one of the most dangerous cities for pedestrians in the United States. Um, what what the fuck? <laughs> what, what are we missing? I mean, we've seen demonstration after demonstration. There's, you know, there, there are, a lot of Dallas is laid out on a one mile grid uh, of six lane streets with turn lanes, um, which operate like little mini urban highways. Um, and the vast majority of those in southern and western Dallas actually are completely disused um, in terms of in terms of the, the, the amount of traffic they carry is simply minuscule compared to the capacity of a facility like that. Why why is it so slow here? Political will? Can I say it? Yeah. I mean that's that's kind of where we we've got to start seeing stuff happen within city hall, and we've got to start putting some things out that way. Um, you know, I know uh, last summer there was a tiny little movement, movement, a tiny little moment where I thought we were going to get rid of right-hand turns on red downtown. Yeah, what happened? I don't know. It just died away. And the least urban member of city council proposed this. How come it didn't immediately spring into being? I don't know. Because we put priority on people who are driving cars over the people who are walking around. And, uh, you know, ultimately, that's what a lot of our work is, is we're trying to show people if we flip that equation and if we start to put the person first, um, what can happen? And what we see is you're creating neighborhoods where people know each other. Um, you're giving businesses an opportunity to thrive because when you're walking around, you're going to stop into that small shop. Whereas if you're just speeding past down your you know, one-way road, you're going to go right past it. So I think we just need some more folks in City Hall really pushing this. I know we've got some amazing people and uh, some of them are on our board. I follow so many of them on Twitter. Um, we just we need those voices to get louder and we need more of them in there. Well, you know, the, the, the answer of political will is, an, is a very interesting answer in this situation because when you have counsel, which even today, if you presented the idea of eliminating right-hand turns in downtown to this council, I, I don't know that there's a person who opposes it, you know? So in theory, that's the policymaking body of the city. But in practice, there is massive internal resistance in the professional staff of the city, and in particular in the transportation department. Um, you know, we have basically a guy who's a cast off from TxDOT, which TxDOT is hardly a, a progressive urban uh, operator. And their staff essentially is able to, through basic inertia, stop anything council wants to do. And the thing that frustrates me is I don't know why council puts up with it. Well, that's a, that is, you're way more in that than I am, uh, for <laughs> sure. You know, we've been trying, so based off the MLK food park, we um, saw kind of some of the issues that are stemming from the mobile food vending ordinance. Um, so this project was in April, May. Yeah. And we've been working since then to try to update that mobile food vending ordinance. Um, and we've got, you know, four suggestions that we've laid out. Um, and so we're kind of working with staff to get through that. It takes 
a long time. And it takes someone who has the privilege to make those calls and set up those meetings um, during the day, which not everyone has the opportunity to do that. Um, so I do think that we've got some barriers in place that um, make it really difficult to make some of these changes that I think we all see and know how badly they affect people. I, uh, how is the buy-in from political leadership on the MLK project? Because Southern Dallas leadership is not always known for urbanism. In fact, mm -hmm. sometimes the opposite. But I have the feeling that there's maybe a new day. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was interesting. We, we came into that project working with the Real Estate Council. Um, so they had already done some work in the area. But I think um, where we started and where we ended on that project were two totally different places. We started with kind of a complete streets approach pre-pandemic. And then that kind of changed, obviously, the landscape of community gathering. So a few months later, we kind of looked at what was going on in that neighborhood and how we could, you know, maintain a project while pivoting a little bit for COVID. And we realized how close we were to Fair Park, how the closure of the state fair was impacting people on a really granular level, how many people there relied on vending their food or selling in a public forum to make a living. We said, you know, we, there's a there's a food desert problem here. There's a lot of people out of work. Um, there's an opportunity here with this blank piece of land that no one knows how to activate. Maybe we put all these things together, take a look at policy around this to figure out why there's not a more, you know, more of this opportunity for people just getting started in a food-based business um, and, and see where that leads us. And, and luckily, a lot of people jumped on board very quickly and saw the, the response, how the response would benefit a lot of people in that neighborhood and then perhaps be a, a catalyst for kind of uh, reevaluating how you look at areas south of 30, um, kind of reevaluating how you, um, you know, can walk in the neighborhood, how walkable this could be considered, how much parking you might need to support something like this. So I think the pandemic really opened a lot of people to be more um, innovative in how they look at land use and people who have a crazy idea, how willing they are to let us kind of go forth with it. One of the biggest opportunities I think that exists on city-owned property is the 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 southern barrier of Fair Park, those massive surface parking lots. And throughout the entire discussion about privatization of the management of Fair Park, um, there were varying discussions about how much of that stuff was going to get turned into a park. Mm -hmm. And the, the ultimate answer wound up being a postage stamp, uh, which is very frustrating to me. But is that I would think that a, a, an entity like Better Block could take that as a canvas and paint a really pretty picture for how to how to reimagine those lots. What should we do there? Well, it's like I hated to I know say that. Oh, like, <laughs> um, yes. No, we have some ideas. I, I am not a dispassionate journalist. <laughs> I, I don't do um, you know uh, even keeled. Uh, sure. You know. Sure. It, and yeah. hard-eyed yeah. look into anything. Loserville is about promoting our friends and trashing our enemies. But <laughs> <laughs> we're on this side now, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so we do have some ideas, and I don't know that where they're going to go and how we're going to get there, um, but we recently wrote a grant saying, let's continue this concept of the food park um, along Malcolm X. 
And what would that look like? And doing it for three years. Um, I think there were a lot of lessons that we learned from that first round. Um, you know, we didn't go into that one with a focus on safety and crime, but that ended up kind of being a big part of it. And so, and you know, even recently I was told, well, once you guys left, like it, it all came back. We know that that's not unexpected. I mean, what we wanted to prove is that for 30 days, by showing this place that has been completely ignored, a little bit of love and a little bit of programming and a little bit of funding, you can truly change what's happening there. Um, so we weren't surprised to hear that once it went away, the everything kind of came back. Um, so we kind of want to dig in a little bit deeper and do a little bit more of a longer timeline and see what this concept of a food park can kind of do. Along with that, though, we would have to change some ordinances. And so, you know, trying to work on the mobile food vending, uh, we like to use shipping containers. Technically, those are only allowed to store things. Uh, you're not allowed to do anything from them unless you pour a foundation and make all these changes, which make it just as expensive as a brick and mortar. Um, so there's some things around that that we, you know, want to look at as well. So. The mobile food vending ordinance drives me bananas. Um, and in addition to the stuff that's actually written in the ordinance, which is terrible, uh, staff has also made administrative decisions that have that burdened vendors. The, for instance, uh, uh, when when people started doing food trucks in Dallas, uh, a fire extinguisher was considered adequate fire protection, and now they're required to have rooftop sprinkler systems. I mean, just point what? How many people have burned to death in a rogue food truck? Like it's never ever happened yet. We have this, we have some pointy headed idiot spending all of his time thinking of ways to further burden vendors. And so the ordinance is, you know, had a, a, uh, a legitimate and an illegitimate, um, set of advocates. The legitimate were people who were worried about food safety. The illegitimate were, uh, restaurant owners who feared competition from, mobile vendors and both of these groups are um, amplifying mythological uh, problems with mobile food vending. Foodborne illness stays the same almost no matter what cities do in terms of inspection or rules. Like it, it, the, our, our health, people be shocked how inefficient and ineffective our health code is. And mobile food vendors don't harm brick and mortar restaurants at all. Like I was in Mexico city last year or now, gosh, right before the pandemic and, uh, doing the street food tour and kept thinking this could be Dallas. We could have this yeah. great street food scene. We have so many people who are fantastic, um, either professional chefs who would like to expand into that kind of environment or, uh, talented amateurs who could, if they were given a pathway forward that was reasonably um, uh, inexpensive, they they could also add to that scene. How, what has been your approach on move, the mobile uh, food vendor ordinance, and and are you getting any response? Yeah, so uh, I've been working on it for a while. And so the restaurant side of things, I'm curious to know if you still feel like that's um, if that's still a group that's out there that's pushing against mobile food vending, because we haven't heard as much from restaurant owners. In fact, we've heard the opposite um, from a few, but of course there are people we know and we've had those conversations with them. 
Um, so we haven't seen that pushback in that way. The, we have proposed um, four changes that I don't know that I'm going to remember all of them, but one is um, better defining what a mobile food vending vehicle is. Um, number two was creating kind of a uh, different classes for the different types of mobile food vending, but giving any, everyone an annual permit. Uh, for example, right now, trailers are not... There's, there's confusion around this one about whether or not they actually are allowed an annual permit, but they still have to get a special event permit every time they show up. Talk about special event permitting. The um, We just had passed a new budget, and in that budget, they raised special event permits and restaurant permits, some from 100%, some to 179%. So that's that's a whole other battle that uh, we're trying to work on right now, uh, but it's affecting the trailers quite, quite a lot in that. Um, the third thing is we want to look at commissaries. Right now, you have to return your truck every single night to a commissary. I do not believe there are any commissaries in southern Dallas. Uh, there's one downtown in the yeah. west or north Dallas. There was gonna, somebody was going to do one on South Lamar, but I don't know if it ever got open. That one's been brought. I haven't, we haven't talked to them yet. I, I know that then you layer in the mechanical components of a food truck that often needs surfacing at the same time that the kitchen component does, and now you're talking mid-cities and a trip to Fort Worth every evening. So there's just so many. Well, in the uh-huh. commissary, one of the commissary requirements is based on the idea that commissary kitchens provide a more efficient way to do a food safety inspection rather than having to inspect people. So essentially, people don't understand that it's actually illegal to cook in a truck in Dallas. Right. And that's right. bananas. It happens all over the world and yeah. no one gets sick. But we have in Dallas, again, it goes back to staff inertia. I think if you, if you presented this to council, they'd be like, yeah, food trucks. Yeah, go. And it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, we're working through it. And to your point about illegal to cook on in trucks, you cannot serve fresh uh, poultry or you can't bit. Yeah, you can't cook anything that's not going to a deep fryer. So you have to go from frozen to fried to a truck. So when you're talking about the health of a community, I mean, that's, that's part of it. Um, and ultimately, what this is doing to our restaurant landscape is you know places like Austin, like Portland, um, Toronto, they're having this really robust food scene because they have people who are testing out their concepts in these lower barrier of entry price points, um, and they're able to test out the concepts, prove them up, and then go to brick and mortar. We don't have that chain right now, and so we're really eliminating what we're able to do in the city when it comes to our food scene. You know, it's so weird in a city that prides itself on restaurant innovations. It's the home of fast casual, home of casual. Like, it, it, that, that really got started here. How we could be so, um, I don't know, uh, needlessly recalcitrant about learning new approaches to, to mobile dining. Yeah. It, uh, it's frustrating. And, you know, these things that when, when y'all are, are doing demonstration stuff to try to change the way people view parts of town that haven't just been neglected, in some cases have been actively abused, um, bringing in mobile vending is one of the fastest ways to help fix those uh, negative perceptions of certain neighborhoods, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the NLK food park was fascinating for that reason. And um, we do surveys for every project before we actually do anything. And we never do a survey until we know that we're going to bring something to life because 
most of the communities we work with are over-surveyed and under-delivered on, so we're, we're not going to do that. <laughs> um, so we do surveys, and um, Kristen was analyzing them, and she was like, there are so many folks asking for vegan and vegetarian options in South Dallas. And um, I didn't realize how big that, no, the request yeah, yeah. was, but I also didn't realize how big that landscape is. Like, there are a lot of mobile food vendors who, who do cater to that, uh, and that was an immediate way to kind of respond. Young Carl Sherman Jr., He's a former uh, school board president for DeSoto. Um, His dad is in the Texas legislature, was the former mayor of DeSoto, I think. I think that's right. And uh, he he introduced me to this. He's vegetarian. And we went down and ate at a vegan place in DeSoto that I reviewed for The Observer. And what I learned is that Southern Dallas has a huge vegetarian and vegan Mm -hmm. Um, population, some of whom are temporarily vegetarian and vegan because one one of the faith traditions in the black church is to do, um, uh, I think it's Daniel fasts. Who would, I can't remember who it was in the Bible who was challenged to eat nothing but vegetables, was denied meat, and, and God sustained him even though he just ate vegetables. And this is considered to be kind of a spiritual exercise among some believers in Southern Dallas and it's enormously cool and healthy and and it's just something that unless you know you don't know right yeah have no idea yeah it was really interesting at the food park how many people wanted to get to the next level Mm -hmm. didn't know how so we're helping people go from you know cottage food law business to catering or going from catering to a little bit of a you know more robust operation going from a oh they've already got the catering figured out they want a, a you know a trailer or a truck so being like, yeah, let's let's use these four or five months and get some of those people to the next level. And we absolutely couldn't in some cases. We had to realize that the accessibility to commercial kitchens is, you know, at the epicenter of that growth. And if you don't have a car and you can't get around very easily and you're loving food and it has to be temperature controlled, it, it just becomes a whole thing. Um, but yeah, we, we spent so much time talking to people who came back over and over and over. It was so fun to see some of these people find a way to become regulars at the farmer's market, own a storefront, hire their, their first employee ever. We just had so many cool stories once we helped them sort of navigate permitting, uh, get some, you know, get some experience selling their product and feedback from people who wanted it. So really great project. I, I miss it all the time. So I really hope this, the second phase really works out. I, uh, my honest advice to people wanting to do mobile vending of food is to just do it. Don't, don't even go near city hall. Don't get a permit, uh, cook food in your, in your food truck. Don't worry about the prohibition on cooking food. Don't get a, don't go to a, uh, a commissary kitchen. And if an inspector shows up, just like Dukes have hazarded out of there. It's just like, it's mobile food vending for a reason. It's to stay one step ahead of the revenueers, you know? Well, so to that point, like that's kind of what we're discussing with the city. If we make this all, if we make everything just way too difficult, that is what people will do. And then that could be a health problem. Like you could have some things there that might not work out. And so we need to make the whole process just easier and simple. I mean, Portland has this amazing guidebook and they put together and it's not just giving you the policy and saying, read this and come back to us with, you know, your answers. It's do you, should you even do this? 
what kind of food are you cooking? This is what we recommend. And so it's this amazing resource. And I just think even something like yeah. that could help both the people who are trying to apply, but also city staff, because there's some confusion within staff on what the actual policies are. So you're saying there could be some problems with Chef Phillips' mobile oysters <laughs> on the half shell truck? I'm saying I won't be visiting uh, your mobile food truck. <laughs> Okay, the city has now basically acknowledged that it utterly failed to implement even a small fraction of the 2011 bike plan, and it is committed to creating a new bike plan. How do we keep the next bike plan from being shelved and a complete failure in the way that the 2011 version was? Oof, that's a good question. Well, okay, so I know we've got $2 million, which is more than we've had before, but nothing compared to other cities. Um, I think it's just, I also... I, I very much enjoyed seeing a council member take credit for the $2 million when that was my budget amendment in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one too. Man, so many, so many things are going to dodge here. Um, no, I, I, I think the city is starting to see more and more people looking at ways to navigate Dallas without a car. And um, as more folks keep coming in and asking for that, I think that will ultimately put more pressure on. Um, obviously, I'm disappointed to see that scooters went the way that they did and to see the lack of progress up to this point on bringing those back. And whether, no matter what people feel about the scooters, they proved that people were willing to get out of, outside of their car and use a different way to get around. And um, we just need to create the infrastructure to allow people to do that more. One of the one of the absolute joys of leaving City Hall for me is not having to pretend anymore that people who dislike scooters have any sort of intellectual honesty or a point, really. <laughs> um, so, and, and Loserville listeners are not surprised by this opinion that I've probably driven into the ground at this point. But just in case you're new to the podcast and you think there's some problems with scooters and perhaps we should regulate them in some way, fuck off. <laughs> get, a, get a different podcast. Um, so I, I, I will tell you that I have been hired by a scooter company oh. to uh, work whatever magic I'm capable of. And uh, I, I think that there could be some good news on that front okay. coming forward. Part of what I regret is when we passed the Complete Streets Design Manual um, of several years ago, we didn't make uh, micromobility planning mandatory. Mm -hmm. We focused very much on doing a community-driven deal, which I think is, is very good, but at a minimum we should have said consideration of this stuff and these design forms, like I actually said, you have to present to the people these design forms that include lanes and protected lanes because obviously in the 2011 bike plan we didn't really understand how fucking dangerous sharrows are right yeah so it, i mean obviously you know even the best among us needs to learn from iterative right. um yes. implementation so um how do you, how do you see I don't know how to phrase this. How do you see creating an environment where council members who still the majority of whom don't bike didn't probably enjoy the scooters all that much? How, how, do, how do their minds get changed to the possibilities that are presented by micromobility? 
I mean, I want to say we have to um, give them the opportunity to try these things, uh, but we know that not everyone will. I want to say you have to listen to your constituents and what they're saying, but I remember... Unless they say they don't like scooters. No, 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 but here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. We had a community meeting uh, after the scooters were removed, were removed in 2020. So I think in like September or October, there was a community meeting. And um, it was to discuss the scooters. I had no idea what people were going to say. And honestly, I thought it was going to be a lot of, we hate the scooters, I'm glad they're gone. I think 90% of the people who spoke were for the scooters. And um, the fact that that wasn't taken into consideration, um, or I felt like wasn't listened to, um, there were emails sent in and somebody got the open records request on those and got those emails and the majority of them were pro scooter. And yet here we are, you know, a year and a half later and we still don't have the scooters. So I- The only major city in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, and there are ways, and I am not saying scooters are perfect. I'm, I I won't go as far as you will on them, um, because there are some issues with the parking, and we're looking at are there cross systems that can be put in place. Um, so I know that that's an issue. Um, riding in the street, you know, any any time I saw a headline, you could literally replace it with motorists or cars, um, and it's the same thing. So we give a pass to cars to do all these things and to no other form. I'm not saying that we should give a pass to any. Anyone, but I find that to be a bit hypocritical in the way that uh, that's kind of approach. Um, I don't know the answer, and I find it, you know, it's, it's a frustrating kind of conversation. Ultimately, though, I don't know that scooters are going to be the thing that are going to be micromobility forever. There may be something else coming out. We always joke about the pogo stick idea that was uh, being tossed around last year. I don't know that it's going to be scooters. Have you ever and, tried a pogo stick? No, no. It's Terribly it seems impossible. like a horrible thing. <laughs> I actually have decent balance and it's impossible. No. But ultimately what I want us to be doing is creating environments that make it safer for people to walk around. And that by putting in bike lanes, by putting in micromobility lanes, we're creating spaces where we're slowing down traffic and we're forcing people to pay attention to what's going around on around them, which makes it safer for the pedestrian. And that's my ultimate goal is getting back to that pedestrian and making it safer for them. Um, so ultimately, I don't know how we do it. Well, I, I hope that the pandemic has given us an opportunity. I, I started to try to bike more and take the bus more before the pandemic, um, just because I realized that I had no reason not to. Like, I have fabulous bus service for my neighborhood, yeah. which is ridiculous. Obviously, I'm one of the people who needs it the least. Um, but whatever, I have it. And, and I, can, I can bike fairly safely because I've got the privilege of living close to the urban core, all, that, all, the, all those things that aren't true for everybody. Right. Um, but the pandemic, you know, I bought a car right before the pandemic forced a shutdown. And it needed some work, so it was in the shop during the shutdown. I finally went and got it a few weeks later because obviously I didn't need it. And then I wound up driving it over the course of the next year just under 1,000 miles before I was like, I'm selling this crap. Why, why, why did I buy this car? I don't even remember at this point. And I think that there are some other people who have recognized that removing some of the car travel that they're do they were doing on a sort of daily basis really made them happier. Because mm -hmm. um, commuting sucks, you know. Commuting is no one likes commuting. It's just it's terrible. Um, and so it, it's a question of if you have the 
the economic resources to avoid nasty commutes. That's that's an issue. I'm not saying people just get to abandon their cars immediately. But do you feel like people who have been moved into work from home, who have been affected by the shutdown, are more um, accepting or open to better blocks ideas? I, I would say yes. I think that people are recognizing that you need to leverage public space uh, to get outside and get any form of exercise or newness to your day during that time. And then when you get out in the public domain, you realize how likely you are to get run over by a car or how, how poor condition the sidewalks are in. Um, I, I think that the conversation happening now around parking minimums, around um, the question of density in Dallas and how do we embrace our identity as an urban, you know, a densely urban city will lead to improving the conversation around micromobility. But I think some things have to happen to get people separated psychologically from their car being an extension of their body. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I think honestly, in terms of a policy um, intervention that you guys could do, is you should propose to City Hall to do a, a, a demonstration project at City Hall for exactly 15 people, mm. just the council. Mm. What, what if the council spent just a couple hours in a reimagined public space? I think when people get to live in what we're talking about, that makes a world of difference. So I do remember with one council member last year, um, they were working on redesigning a street and I kept talking about parking protected bike lanes and he didn't grasp it. He didn't understand it and told me aesthetically he didn't love that idea of the part, the car being on the outside. And I was like, well, just go to Harwood. Harwood we yeah. installed one right before the pandemic in 2019 and you can see exactly what I'm talking about where you've got works like a charm yeah and which is I mean I'm not shocked but I'm also pretty pleasantly surprised it's been working out um and so we did and he finally came back and he's like oh okay and it was just that moment so people just have to experience some of these things so yeah you're right we'll uh, we'll get to work on that demonstration and uh, make that happen uh, well, this has been fantastic. I will give either or both of you the the last word. Um, this is this is going to be a popular episode among the listenership. Maybe the best we've ever done. <laughs> I mean, I assume so. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you for joining me. Um, people are really going to be interested to hear how you all see the, the future of urbanism. And I've been a fan of this place for a while. And I think more people, the more people that know about it, the more um, influence you're going to be able to have in your future projects. That's my goal anyway. Cool. We appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's fascinating work, but ultimately we always tell people like it starts with the community it's all led by the community. So we're going to be listening to what people want to see and, um, kind of bringing that to bear as we go. Unless they hate scooters. 